Blog Talk Radio. I'm getting down to the sum of this. The sum of that. The sum of everything. Hello, hello, hello. It's another Extra Friday Scientology edition of Come and Get Some. It's going to be part two of Norcrest, why you can't be gay in Scientology. And let me tell you, I listened back today, uh, trying to edit it and get it out for you guys. Part two might be more impactful than part one on, on an emotional level, entertainment level, on every level. I think you're going to really enjoy today's episode uh, with the conclusion of my conversation uh, with Nora. Uh, it's inauguration day. I can tell you, uh, I'm not going to get too political, but it did look like uh, Walter, the Jeff Dunham puppet, was being inaugurated today. <laughs> I, mean, I swear, he looks like Walter if he's got a tibet. Wait a minute. Have you ever seen Walter and Donald Trump in the same room together? Hmm, might be something to that. Well, anyway, uh, before we get started with the interview, I want to go ahead and address the uh, the unstable uh, level in the room. Last week, in the middle of my interview with Nora, I received a phone call to the show, which I don't usually receive phone calls because they're pre-recorded conversations except for the intro and outro, which I do live very clearly so. Um, Kayla, young Kayla called on behalf of the CCHR. That, of course, is the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. Uh, also, the uh, uh, the ones who put out the, the Museum of Psychiatry, the Industry of Death. So she has some things to say. She wanted to defend uh, the CCHR. She wasn't actually, which I thought, uh, wrongfully so, I thought she was claiming to represent the CCHR as a, as a member, but she was just advocating. Turns out she's really tight-knit with Gemma Harris and John Alex Wood. Try saying that name without puking in your mouth a little bit. Um, but uh, there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of complication really getting a read on where she's coming from and what her state is, uh, state of mind is. I'm not making accusations or guesses or assumptions. I'm just trying to protect the integrity of this show as well as the integrity of young Miss Kayla. Uh, I wish her only the best, but don't you worry, Kayla, because I did promise you that I would address your concerns uh, in a chat we had uh, last week. And next week, I'll have a special guest where these concerns will definitely be addressed head on. To hear who that guest is going to be, stay tuned to the end of this part two of Nora Crest, Why You Can't Be Gay in Scientology. I think you're all going to like it. Here it is. He's like, so you're a lesbian now. Great. <laughs> what you know and I was so ashamed of it and so still in the mindset of like I'm a terrible human I decided of course the real problem was I was 26 years old and I was a virgin and so I needed to like you know have sex and that really turned out to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be like you know it's not like the movies where you just show up at a bar and like five guys want to take you home like that didn't happen but um my sister my baby sister suggested that I go out with this guy Cameron who I had known um, in the Sea Org. He was married to somebody else at the time, but we were friends. And I thought, oh, you know, we're friends, whatever. And we went out, and then, of course, uh, you know, we had sex. And that was like, you know, a lot of stuff happened there. And then I decided, okay, this is the guy. I've had sex now. Now I want to have babies. And so we, a year later, we were dating for like a year, and we got married and had um, our first son. 
and then we had our second son. And then basically from like that time forward, so pretty much the last seven years or so, in my mind, I started fighting off all of the things that I had felt before and going through a lot of just internal grief and angst at myself for now I'm married and I'm going to ruin all these lives and all these things and da 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 And then um, when my mom finally left Scientology in 2012, it took me a decade, me and my sister a decade basically of being insurgents in our own family to slowly sow the seeds with her, but she did leave. Um, We decided to move from uh, where we were living out to Ventura, just like fresh start, uh, you know, start over kind of thing. And when we moved here and I didn't have the pressure of like Scientology being in my face constantly, that was when I came to terms like 100% like, okay, I'm gay. And I told my husband, uh, my ex-husband rather, and he was like, okay, I want you to be happy. And then it took me two more years after that revelation to be comfortable enough with myself to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm not just going to be a gay woman who's married to a man who's living a celibate life. Like I'm going to go and actually be uh, a lesbian. And that was, it was very huge, but actually doing that was so freeing. Right. It, uh, it was, it, you know, and it's, just, it's, it's like that. So I mean, I'm not dating anybody, right? I'm ladies. I'm single, but because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a prized catch with all this stuff I've just told you about myself. But, um, uh, you know, just declaring that publicly and putting the video out and, you know, uh, Cameron and I basically, you know, we told our children and everything. It's a lot of emotions, but we, we love each other very much. This is not an issue of like, we hate each other. We can't stand to be around each other kind of thing. We basically saved each other from Scientology. We helped each other get out of it. And because of that and because of our two children, um, there's a lot of love. And very much like Maria Bello, I don't know if you've read her book, Love is Love, which is great. But our family is basically like evolving into a a modern family where obviously he's going to be uh, dating people and seeing people and I will eventually... Uh, date people and things like that and um, our family's just going to get bigger because he will always be a part of my family because he's one of my best friends and obviously he's you know my children's father but again I am so unbelievably fortunate that you know I'm telling my husband of you know let's see in March we would have been married uh, 12 years that uh, you know I'm gay, and his reaction was, okay, I just want you to be happy. He was like, you know, that was literally his reaction. Like, I'm heartbroken that I can't be the person you want right now, but I love you so much, I want you to be happy. And I don't know how many people who've had that conversation with their husbands. I can't imagine. That reaction. Yeah. You know, so I'm blessed. I know it's a cheesy word, but it's appropriate. I'm blessed in that respect where I have an incredibly loving and understanding family and uh, that has been there for me during my recovery and has encouraged me to seek help and, you know, and actually seek out therapy. I mean, that was one thing Serge talked about last night that was so powerful for me, but they didn't get into it enough, um, was the fact of him seeking out a therapist because he and I spoke about it. And I said, you know, the first time I went, um, I have Kaiser coverage. So they just like assign you a person. And I was like, okay, whatever. The guy they assigned me to literally looked like Santa Claus. Okay. He was like he was like a seventy year old, 
like six foot four tall guy, white beard, white hair. He was so nice. So nice. I really can't overemphasize that enough. And he put me in his office. And the minute he shut the door to his office, I started just, my PTSD just kicked in full drive. I was like going over in my mind, like 20 different scenarios, how I could knock him out and escape if I needed to. Wow. Like that's, that's what goes on in, in my mind. Like if I go to a restaurant, I have to know where every exit is in the restaurant and have at least four escape plans um, in order for me to be comfortable, And which is why I frequent specific restaurants. Like I get comfortable in places eventually, but it's, it's, a, it's an impulse reaction. If I go into a new place, I've already planned a, a battle and an escape at least three times in my head. Still no. Uh, to, to get out of there. So that's, that's what I'm dealing with as a person. Uh, that's basically PTSD from that. But I had a panic attack with this guy just because he was a therapist who was listening to me. You know what I mean? Like this is how much terror they put inside of you about therapy and Scientology, any therapy that isn't Scientology, rather. Of course. So it's it's a recovery process, and it's, I mean, for me, it's been 14 years. Well, or 15 now, but and it's still going. Well, don't tell yourself short. You know, you say it with all the stuff you're saying now. Uh, <laughs> we all have baggage, but but not all of us handle it as well or as um, what's the word I'm looking for eloquently as you have. You handle oh. it pretty well. You you <laughs> you are you know, for someone who's been through what you've been, who's been who's been that crazy Scientology person that people go like, why do I care? Idiot fell for it or whatever, which is the, the most right. horrible thing that people who don't no, and aren't educated on it, let's say, but you're you're so well rounded that that uh, you're. I mean, I know it, there there's there's flaws, there's 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 work to be done, <laughs> but I'm not calling you flaw. I'm just saying you, there's always going to be work to be done on all of us, and, and don't right. say it's so short. You're you're going to be fine. Um, really, really. Um, so I mean, that's 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 the hope is that you know. Um, you know, that I continue to recover. And obviously because I have children and I've, I've said this publicly before, I, I truly believe that my children saved my life because it, I was in a very dark place for many years after leaving the church, just being in this mind kind of mind control trap. And after I had my first son, um, his birth was very dramatic. I was very much like, you know, still Tom cruising it up. Like I'm going to have a silent birth and I'm going to have natural childbirth, and I'm not going to have any drugs, you know, and I was, like, super hardcore about it, and I ended up, um, you know, I had high blood pressure on the due date, which, Mm. you know, is not a good sign, and I hadn't had it during the pregnancy, but they were like, we're going to have to induce you, and I was like, I don't care, but I'm not having an epidural, so to all the ladies out there who ever (laughs) have a baby, don't do what I'm about to tell you, Um, so for... uh, 45 hours of full induction on Pitocin, which basically takes your contractions to the maximum that they can be, every single contraction, and I had been having that now for about, you know, uh, out of those 45 hours, 20 plus of those hours were at full Pitocin um, with no epidural. And uh, the doctor came in to check me, and I'm thinking, let's pop this baby out. Like, let's do it. We got to, you know, let's rock and roll. And she looks at me and she says, yeah, you're like, mm, like four or five centimeters. You got like another five to ten hours. And I looked at my mother and I was like, I'm, I'm going to die. 
Like, I I can't keep doing this. And she's like, no one said you can't get an epidural. Like, why don't you do it already? <laughs> and so I, so I said, hello, is the epidural guy still here? Like, did they leave? And so they gave me the epidural, which was like magic. And when you're hooked up to all, it was magic. Because you have all these monitors on you, and you can see when the contraction's about to come. So Cameron's in there holding my hand, and he sees the graph start, like, you know, like looks like an earthquake's about to happen. And he is re- he's like, okay, okay, just squeeze my hand, you know, just breathe. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling nothing. And I was like, I don't feel anything. I was like, oh, my God, this is magic. But because I had exerted myself so long, um, two things happened. I spiked 103 fever, uh, like another four hours later. And my son, uh, his heart rate went up over 200. <sighs> so my, my OB, who was like, she was like the coolest cat in the world. She was like, listen, so we're going to just do an emergency C-section. And we're just setting up the OR. And don't you worry. It's going to be, you know, super quick. It's going to be great, you know. So they took me in there, and the C-section itself took 20 whole minutes, you know, from start to finish. And he came out, and in the moment that I laid eyes on my son, we locked eyes, I had, like, my whole life flash before my eyes, just everything. And in that moment, I realized how much my mother loved me. Like, I had never really known yeah. until that exact moment and I just started crying and I felt so much love for someone that I had never you know I'd been in love a, a few times and I had never felt this type of love for another human and that on its own that connection that immediately happened with my son was something that was so important that no matter what was happening in my mind I was like, no, like I just go away from me. Bad thought. I have this baby and he needs me and I have to like be present for him. And so because of, because of him, I know that I'm here today to talk to you. Um, and if I hadn't had him, I don't know, honestly, I can't imagine the scenario where I would still be here. So, so this that. brings because up a question. Psychology's control of me was so absolute still at that point until that minute that I had my, my oldest son, Landon. So, so that's what I was going to ask you, is because when you were in Scientology, your escape involved an attempted uh, taking of your own life. Yes, because when, when you're on the uh, RPF, basically you're, you're a scumbag, and you're like the worst person. They hide you away from the public. You're not allowed to speak to anyone unless spoken to. That includes your family. So if your family doesn't write you a letter, you cannot call them up and say, hey, Merry Christmas, or anything like that. Um. And I had spent nearly three years there. They were attempting to reprogram me, uh, you know, of my gayness. I had run away a couple times, uh, and they brought me back both times. I had accumulated all of the injuries that I told you, three broken ribs, two herniated discs, uh, getting electrocuted, (laughs) and almost bleeding to death. And um, I realized that uh, one night I was in the laundry unit, uh, where you're literally washing the other RPFers, you know, knickers and everything. And I was tossing bags of laundry down to this other girl. And the only thing you can do on the RPF for entertainment is, like, you know, tell jokes or, like, reenact movies that you know by heart. So we were kind of like uh, the people at the end of Fahrenheit 451 who are telling <laughs> each other books. You know, like, we are just, like, telling each other, like, the movies that we loved over and over so I was doing a scene, I think, from Austin Powers or something, you know, ridiculous. And she started laughing. And the person in charge of the RPF 
saw this interaction, saw me tossing bags of laundry to this girl, and I made her laugh. And he, looking at a total normal reaction between two humans, decided that that was me trying to seduce this girl. And he uh, had me uh, heavily interrogated, which I, during the interrogation I just started laughing, and I said, no, this is, this is ridiculous. This is not Scientology. I'm not doing it. And I attempted to leave the interview. Um, I was forcibly manhandled by, you know, several people trying to shove me back in a chair, trying to keep me in the room. At one point, I had like as many, I don't remember how many people, I just had hands all over my body holding my arms and my legs and smashing me into the ground. And I was like commando crawling, like just adrenaline fueled, getting away from these people, pounding on the door, trying to get somebody to open it to let me out. And then eventually somebody did come because they heard all the pounding. And as they opened the door, I, you know, I don't know how it happened, but I, I used all the strength that I had to pry myself away. But I stupidly didn't run out of the building, like, towards the fire department that was down the street. I ran to security, and I had no shoes and socks on. My feet and hands were, and my face were bloody. My nose was partially broken. I wow. ran to security. I pulled up. I picked up the phone. And the security guard who answered was a guy I had known since I was 10. His name's Alex. And his response, I'm hysterical. And he says, stop bleeding all over my phone. Uh. That was his response to me. And then uh, the next day, I was reprimanded by uh, the person in charge of the laundry unit for about 45 minutes where she stood, uh, you know, like an inch from my face screaming at me about basically how the world would be a much better place if I weren't in it and I was just the most worthless piece of trash that had ever, you know, dared to come out of the trash can. And um, I took her message to heart. I took myself uh, away from her unit and I just was hysterical, scrubbing walls and not talk. I was like catatonic, just scrubbing these walls, not talking to anybody. Various people came to yell at me um, for the next three hours again, repeating, you know, uh, terrible, terrible things about me. And then um, I locked myself in a utility closet and uh, drank bleach because Mm. I knew they were never going to let me go. No matter what, I was never going to be cured of being a lesbian. And I was just going to be in this hell for the rest of my life. And I couldn't survive it. I couldn't survive it. And the only thing that I thought before I drank the bleach uh, was, I'm sorry, Mom. And then I drank it, and it didn't kill me. But uh, kids listening at home, do not do that. Uh, it, it, it burned my esophagus and my stomach. And their answer to that, like when I could finally tell them what had happened, um, they did not call 911. They did not get me immediate medical attention. They gave me a quart of milk to drink. And then um, they tried to determine if I had actually tried to kill myself or if I was just being dramatic. Oh, my God. And when I said, no, i not just being dramatic, uh, they took me off of the base because now I'm a security risk. I'm a PR risk for them. And uh, Quinn Toffer, who was the medical liaison officer, uh, put me in his car and pulled over at the Chevron station on the corner of Vermont and Los Feliz, or Las Feliz, as people in California say it, um, and um, called Dr. Megan Shields, who is a Scientologist and a doctor who was literally around the corner from where I was at, and told her what had happened. And um, she refused to treat me because I was a suicide risk. 
Wow. So, so she broke her Hippocratic oath um, because she's a Scientologist. Um, and so they had to take me to the Olive View Medical Center, which is a, like a offshoot of UCLA Medical Center. They work in conjunction with them. But it was about 45 minutes, almost an hour away. So we get to the emergency room. And on the way there, Quinn is interrogating me about why I did this and then coaching me into a short story mm. that I'm rehearsing in the car so that I don't get put on a 72-hour psych hold for attempting suicide. So when we get there, Quinn is in the emergency room with me, and the doctor says to me, so what happened? And I was like, oh, you know, I was scrubbing these walls. I was washing them with bleach, and I had, like, a bleach and water mixture in this Arrowhead bottle, but I also was drinking a bottle of Arrowhead, and I mixed up the two bottles, and oh my God, so dumb. I took an accidental little baby sip of the bleach water. And the doctor looked at me, and he was like, is that what, that's the story we're going to go with? Right. And I was like, so then he asked me like three more times, and I repeated like verbatim the, the thing again. And then he looks at Quinn Topper. Now, if anybody's seen a picture of me, I'm a brunette with like olive skin and brown eyes. And Quinn Topper looks like, you know, a, a poster child for the Aryan nation. <laughs> and he says, he says to me, you know, who's this guy? I said, oh, it's my cousin. Like, there's no way we have any blood relations, like, whatsoever. So he knew something was up, this doctor, and, uh, you know, had, again, had I not been terrified to lose my entire family and everything, I would have, like, just said to him, this guy has kidnapped me, I drank fucking bleach to try and kill myself, please, please, please help me call my mother, you know, and looking back on it, obviously you can look back on any part of your life and relive it, like if I had been brave enough at that point, I should have done that, yeah. you know, yeah, it's, hindsight is twenty twenty. but you know obviously the good news is I made it and I'm here Yep. Um, you know, and so I, I'm one of the lucky ones, there are many too many, there, but there are many, uh, specifically second generation, third generation Scientologists who have killed themselves because they got into a similar scenario that I did, where you're you're basically left with nothing, and you are so broken as an individual that your only out is is to off yourself because you are so terrible, you're so unworthy of the earth um, that that's what you deserve. No, and it's that's what's terrifying to me. That's why I was not excited for Serge to tell his story because his story is terrible. <laughs> Right. And the fact that he's alive and he's walking and talking and um, even as doing as well as he is 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 a miracle. Uh, you know, all of us, I would say, second gen, third gen people, we are kind of miracles, each individual in our own right, because of what we were put through um, growing up and things like that. So, um, you know. Uh, it's been interesting. I will say this. It's been interesting conversations with my mom since she left because she really dove into researching Scientology at that point, and she read basically every book that had been written about the church from former members and stuff. And at one point, um, I think she was in the middle of John Atack's A Piece of Blue Sky, and she gathered me and my sister together, and she was crying, and she was like, you know what? I'm, I want to apologize to you guys if I had really known what was going on and what Scientology was you would have never set foot in a church. Yeah. You know, and when I tell my stories about things that happen, she gets very emotional and she takes it very personally. And I said, you know, right. Mom, I'm not, I don't blame this on you. I blame it on, you know, we were all in this circumstance together. We were all participating in it. And 
you know, it, this is just uh, what happened, you know? So it's not, there's no fault, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because what's the point? I could stare at my mom and be like, you're a fucking asshole and you did this to me. Well, it's like, completely okay, unproductive. Any better. Completely unproductive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does, it does nothing. I mean, it's just that, um, you know, uh, you, you just have to move forward from it. I mean, my mom's recovering from it, too. She was in for 40 years. That's 40 years of her life that she spent believing this stuff, doing the, you know, doing these things and stuff. That's a lot of baggage to carry around. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and guilt and things like that. And so we work with each other on our recovery and things like that. And, you know, uh, the fact that I did attempt suicide um, is very serious, you know, but that shows also the, the deadly seriousness and, and how, I'm just searching for the right word here, but, you know, how truly evil Scientology is. Because if I were the only person that had ever attempted suicide to leave, then you'd just be like, well, this girl's dramatic. It's an isolated incident, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not. But it's not, and that's the scary part, and that's what I wish they would have gotten into last night. Um, Because there are so many, there's so many stories to tell. It's like appealing an onion, you know what I mean? And that's why Leah's show is so powerful right now because she can dedicate an hour yep. to one aspect of the crazy and talk about just that. Like the first, you know, episode talked about statutory rape where Amy Scobie told her story. And then when they interviewed the Headleys, they were talking about forced abortion. I know so many girls that were in that scenario, so many that were teenagers and even, you know, young women um, forced to have multiple abortions so that they could keep working for Scientology. I mean, who does that? Who does that? I mean, it's so insane. You know, I mean, if, if you're working anywhere, you're working in a 24-hour fitness, oh, I got pregnant. Oh, well, you better go get that handle, girl, because you got to be in here training people. Right. You know, like, what? That's not a thing, yeah. <laughs> and in real life, that's, that's not a thing. I want to ask you, though, because uh, what I was trying to get at is, you tried to you tried to um, to to end your life while you're in Scientology because you felt like there was there was no other place to go, and that right. you were the the dirtest, the lowest of the dirt, and that stayed with you so long that it took until the birth of your son to give up those thoughts. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, basically it took that was that was three years of time in between those two things, almost exactly three years. And Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it took. And so basically, I mean, I was living, you know, life just with like a cloud, you know, like, like pig pen with the cloud of dust, right. a cloud of negative thoughts around me at all times, thinking about what a terrible human I was because I wasn't, you know, helping all of mankind and I wasn't, you know, doing like, I, I was like, well, maybe I should join the police academy or something, but I couldn't physically, I couldn't, there's no way I could have physically done it. And then of course, I would have to lie on the psychological thing and just say, oh, no, no, I wasn't really trying to kill myself. Oh, that's true. They they, they, yeah. they ruined you, basically, uh, with everything. Yeah. No, I'm not qualified for that job. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't do it if you wanted to. You probably, you probably now, at this point in your life, you probably could handle it and do a good job. But, but with all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world, there's no way anyone's oh. going to give you that chance. I've, I've thought about five different careers that I would love to go on, like emergency medicine. You know, I'm I'm good in a crisis, but thinking about helping people with cuts and, you know, like injuries and stuff, that's the easy part. The part that I think would be very terribly hard for me is the pressure part 
and yeah. it's not that I would ever be treated the same way that I was treated in the C organization with people screaming obscenity, obscenities at me and, um, you know, things like that because people in real life don't do that. Uh, you know, it's called human right. decency and also uh, they can be fired. Exactly. Like that, <laughs> you know, exactly. against the law. So I'm not worried about that. But I realized because of the PTSD, honestly, when I get into a high pressure environment, I have to really like do a lot of uh, Zen breathing and exercises to calm myself. And so for that reason, I wouldn't be good. But when I was on the RPS, I mean, one time a girl came in. I just happened to be in the office when she came in, but she was doing construction. And somebody was carrying um, some track and stud that was metal, like on their shoulder, and had come around a corner real quickly, and this track and stud had basically sliced her eyebrow essentially off of her face, and it was like hanging down. So she comes in, she's bleeding, everyone's freaking out. I said, okay, let me look. I cleaned it up. I We had some butterfly bandages, and I like really made sure that I put her eyebrow basically back where it was supposed to go. And she did get taken to the emergency room because it was bad. I was like, she has to go to the emergency room. She needs actual stitches. <laughs> so they took her. And when she came back, she gets said to me, she goes, the doctor was really impressed with how you bandaged me up. I said, really? He said, yeah. Like they asked basically had a professional done it. You know, I took a first aid class in high school when I was a lifeguard. So all that data stuck with me. Mm-hmm. But so like I can confront that. I can, you know, it, I didn't get sick or anything like that. I didn't feel like, oh, you know, people get see blood, they get freaked out. But being in an environment where I'd have to be, so much pressure would be demanded of me on a constant basis, you know, an emergency room, very high pressure environment, I don't think I would do, I think I would just shut down mentally. You know what I mean? And so that's unfortunate. Yeah. But I have to be, but but I'm at a point now where I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? Like where I'm okay with, guess what? I have a limitation. And I can be okay with that limitation and not beat myself up about it. And that's a huge step. Well, don't beat yourself up about it, but I wouldn't be okay with the fact of why you have that yeah. limitation. It's, it's, a big, it's a big, huge uh, crime against humanity issue. I mean, everything that I'm yeah. hearing is crimes against humanity. I just, on my last podcast, compared Scientology to a terrorist <laughs> organization, and I don't think that's too far off. No, because um, no, it's not, because it, the guilt for not helping all mankind like I honestly like no no shit when Katrina happened I was pregnant with my oldest son and I was seven months pregnant when Katrina happened and my impulse was to get on a plane mm-hmm. and go and get in a boat and help these people and my mother and my ex-husband are looking at me like you're an insane person you're seven months pregnant like, yeah your only problem is growing this human inside of you and I was like but look at all these people I, I gotta go help them I have to I can't not help them like I was beating myself up because I was living in California and I was, and I was pregnant and I wasn't on a boat helping people recover, you know, get out of their houses. Like I, I was thinking of all the people that had I gone, I would have saved that wouldn't be dead. I mean, it's like, that's the ridiculous. The ultimate guilt trip. Yeah. Because you never don't give yourself a guilt trip. Anytime a natural disaster happened, the tsunami and, you know, Thailand, Oh, I should have been there. I could have saved those people. Really? I could have saved those people. How was I <laughs> a fucking tsunami? How am I going to save people right. from that? You know what I mean? But that's the craziness that gets ingrained in you because you really believe all of mankind is your responsibility. You know, I mean, I was on the RPF when 9-11 happened and I was like, well, I better go join the army now to go fight the terrorists because, you know, got to go save all mankind. I mean, 
Now, I imagine there were some people who lied, who who were homosexual and said, you know what, I'm cured. And they answered all the questions right on their e-meter and they moved on. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because let's face it, it, at some point uh, when you're being tortured, you do realize, like, if I just say what they want to hear and I make convince myself that that is true all of this pain and terribleness is going to stop and i want it to stop i'm real i'm real concerned about the fact that they come out of because when you're in the rpf i guess if you're if you're in there or if you're in a hole or if you're in sea org you're kind of sure. contained within those walls so you're 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 easy yeah. to control but when you go out on your own and you and you blow is the terminology mm-hmm. when you're blown and you go out and they come to your home to physically take you back, all right. of a sudden that becomes not freedom of religion, which is what they're hiding behind in the court right. of law. That becomes kidnapping. And I, and I imagine that's enforceable when they come to your home like that. And I don't know why that doesn't yeah. get enforced more except for the whole, oh, I guess I have to go back. You know, it, it, it's, it's partially the individual person saying I have to go back, but it's also the families involved. It, it, it's a rule in Scientology that you are not allowed to sue another Scientologist. And that includes calling the police on another Scientologist. You are expected to always handle any disagreement, um, whether legal or otherwise, uh, with another Scientologist via the Church of Scientology itself or um, an arbitration company which is run by Scientologists. And that's your only recourse. So let's say. Uh, you're a Scientologist, and another Scientologist asks you to invest in their Ponzi scheme, which you don't think is a Ponzi scheme because they're a Scientologist. But you invest well, a shit lie. ton of money. In, yeah. Yeah. You invest a shit ton of money in this Ponzi scheme, and this person takes you for a ride, and they've just stolen a hundreds of, of Scientologist money. Now, those hundreds of Scientologists who have a legal, uh, you know, case against this person are not allowed to combine together and file a class action lawsuit and get this guy thrown in jail and somehow recover some money. Instead, they have to go to the ethics department at their local org and write reports that then get reviewed, and then this guy gets called in, and he's like, oh, you know, I was trying to help, and it just didn't work out. And then, you know, he does some, you know, phony baloney amends uh, project, which usually involves donating massive amounts of cash to the International Association of Scientologists, which is the richest of the front group. And then all is forgiven. Oh, oh, you lost all your money? That's your fault. You should have, uh, you know, anything that happens to you in Scientology that's bad it's your fault. Um, is your fault. Something you did wrong. And anything that happens to you in your life that's good is because you use Scientology. So. Wow. So, so what I want to do here, <laughs> you've made some great, you, you've been great. I don't want to keep you too long because I know you have, you have other things going on. I'm holding you pretty long here. You have a, <laughs> I have a life. <laughs> the confrontation's on. The the the, uh, the war without guns. Very dramatic. Um, yeah. The the, um, <laughs> the 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 whole thing with this is uh, you've been great. You told uh, you pretty much. Uh, it's um, unbelievable what you said, and it should carry more weight, and it should get more exposure. And I'm sorry that they cut you off of 2020. Uh, I'm hoping a lot of people who didn't see in 2020 catch you here. Um, yeah. When I end my interviews, I usually do something called 10 questions, a little way to, to un- un- unleash the stress of the issue. <laughs> you know, 10 questions is goofy, right. the goofy questions. Some of them might be deep. Some of them are fun. And if you don't like a question and don't want to answer it, you can pass, of course. <laughs> okay. uh, but before we wrap up with 10 questions, I do want to ask you, uh, I, I want to actually talk about something real quick that you touched on because I think it's important. 
And uh, I'll probably end up doing a whole entire show about it. I think it, it warrants an entire show, but the, the whole pedophile issue. Um, it's yeah. real. It, it's legit. Yeah. Um, you say, and you specifically say, homosexuality is lower on the tone scale, less likely to move forward than a pedophile. Yeah. All right, and it seems to me that I've seen some reports, and I, I should record names and try to contact people. I know it's going to be real tough to get people to want to talk uh, about such yeah. a thing, especially if they're a victim. But um, the whole thing with that is if you are underage, if you're 7, 10, 14, and you have an encounter with somebody, it's your fault because of a past life, something you did that brought that on. Or something you did in this life, even. Even if you're that young, it could just be because, you know, you're telling uh, you ate those you know, cookies? lies in school. Or just something stupid like that. It doesn't even have to be, you know, you're an intergalactic overlord from 10,000 years ago who blew up a planet. It doesn't even have to be, like, you know, that bad. What really disturbs me is this is actually quantified. This is actually verified, in, in my opinion. And I guess I can see Scientologists spinning it, but it's verified in Dianetics. And I know you've seen yeah. that excerpt floating around, and you've read it, uh, from all Ron Hubbard's own words in Dianetics that if a seven-year-old kid, you know, a, a female seven-year-old pulls away from a grown, older man, even if it's a passionate kiss, she shouldn't be pulling away, basically, yeah. or there's something wrong with her from her past. Right, like why Why is that freak her out that, uh, you know, she's seven and a 50-year-old guy is shoving his... Yeah, you know, why would that be free? Oh, that'd be weird. Why would that be weird? Right, so it, it's really strange how that's acceptable, and it's really telling um, the mindset and the mentality uh, when you're inside um, that, you know, Kirstie Alley, I sent that excerpt to her on Twitter, and I got blocked immediately. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah, you know, it's like, well, this is... This is Irrefutable. Scienti <laughs> the one thing Scientologists will not tolerate is using Scientology to point out to them that Scientology is crazy. <laughs> Which is crazy in itself. Uh, so, so put yourself in, and I know this is kind of a cruel thing to ask you. It really does seem like a cruel thing to ask you, but putting yourself back in those days, you've been taken back to RPF. You left, you escaped, you blew, you got pulled back in, ribs were broken, you're hurt, you're bleeding. Somebody contacts you and says, hey, What's the story with Zeno? How do you how do you respond? Oh, well, at that time, I I I was not OT three, so I didn't. I would have just been like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard." You would have, okay. So so let me let me let me go back then. Let me say, all right, <laughs> good 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 yeah, point. That would have been my honest reaction because I would just be like, "That can't possibly be true." <laughs> so I ask you, what about the fact that it's been reported that Oh Ron Hubbert never had any of these degrees they say he had? What do you make, wow. What do you make of that? I would have had a visceral reaction at that time. I still would have been like, "You're a, you're a lying piece of crap." Where'd you get that from, Wiki? <laughs> yeah, like why would you even know what Wikipedia is? Right. At point. I mean, I honestly did not understand the internet, um, which uh, that would be another podcast for my interactions on Yahoo Chat when I first got off of Scientology. Oh. I did not understand like rules and you know talking to people. <laughs> Just regular I common see my conversation. Like I got saying yes to that. that don't oh, say yes. don't say yes to don't that. Don't say no. yes when someone offers to show you their webcam. Yes, yes, but, especially the kids. Know, yes. I was, I was basically like a kindergartner. You know what I mean? I had never had a cell phone. I had never been on the internet. Um, you know, it was 2004, mm. uh, two, 2002 rather. 
So the internet was still kind of in its own infancy, but it was pretty well established at that time. It was weird if you didn't have an email address. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you had to relearn. That. Yeah. I mean, I had to learn all these things. Um, but my, my reaction, even despite the physical and mental abuse I'd gone through, I still, even at that time, still believed in L. Ron Hubbard. I still believed that he had discovered these things and that everything he told us was true. Everything he told us about himself, everything he told us about his discoveries. I, even if you had shown me actual paperwork that showed that he was lying, I would have been like, that's you just made that up. That's Photoshop. Well, that's the funny thing about that is that uh, I totally forgot what I was going to make my point on. I'm sorry. So <laughs> I totally forgot. Well, I, I had answered the question. You did answer the question. You answered it very, very well. And I was so into your answer <laughs> that I lost my track of thought. But that's fine. Um, I'm going to kick myself later for not bringing Oh, I wanted to say, okay, yes. It reminds me. <laughs> it does remind me that... Uh, people like yourself, uh, people like myself even, probably now, Tony Ortega, all these people, are called religious bigots and right. um, haters or hate, they're, they're, they're spreading hate. I can't can tell you, I haven't seen a word, not even, and look, look I, I don't know who's who when I look out there. I don't know these people personally. There's a ton of, of community on social media that's anti-Scientology now speaking out. Right. Some of them might be just looking for something to get excited about. Some of them might be just like, you know, the housewife that follows, you know, the, the trial of the century, like nobody else right, follows right. it. And they so might be overly lose, enthusiastic. So car wreck kind I, of I, I, and I get that, and I'm okay with that, but it's different than the people who are actually trying to do something and actually, like, really have a legitimate concern. Uh, but, but I haven't heard a single person say a hateful thing. I have not heard anything hateful. No, because the thing about it is, is in Scientology, anything that you say that is not Scientology is the salvation of all mankind and L. Ron Hubbard is a genius is considered evil. Yeah, and that should be concerning. Like, just the thing that you pointed out to me, like just the, the quote from Dianetics where you're like, uh, why is this okay in your religion that your leader is talking about a grown-ass man shoving his tongue down a little girl's throat, and she's supposed to be okay with that. But, Nora, it, it's a philosophy. It's not really, it's not literal. Like, like maybe there wasn't, a, you know, maybe there wasn't Noah's Ark, you know? Maybe that's a, that's a parable. Yeah. But here's the thing about that. That's what they get into and they deflect, but it's like when you point out specific things, I mean, if, if somebody had the, you know, the time, which would really be a lot of time, because this man talked a lot, <laughs> and he wrote a lot um, to go through everything. He has something negative to say about everyone, about African-American people, about Asians, uh, a, a lot of negative things to say about women, um, homosexuals, negative things about children. It, there is not really a topic or a person in humanity that he didn't tear down in some way, um, on tape and in his own writing. So this is all him. It's not like you're interpreting his writings as something. He's literally saying these things. So yeah. he was a, you know, he was a racist, misogynistic, paranoid, schizophrenic homophobe who started a cult um, and unabashedly admits, if you want to make money, you got to start a religion. And yep. that's a quote from him. That's a literal. That's an exact quote. Yes. That's an exact quote from him. And that's really what it's about. And David Miscavige has taken that idea and turned it up to 11. Yeah, he just cranked it right up to 11 and, you know, um, is making even more money than L. Ron Hubbard could have dreamed of. 
you know. And it's um, that's what's really scary is that he's doing it all under the cloak of religion, much in the same way that these uh, megachurch pastors make that same oh. kind of money. You know, with the 10,000 people in the audience and the yep. hundreds of thousands of people listening to them at home. Yeah, evangelists. Every, every one of those people donate yep. $1, that's $10,000 a pop. Boom, boom, yep. boom. Easy money, easy money. I feel like the government needs to step in because, you know, I know the church tries to hide behind the church, quote-unquote church, uh, hides behind the whole religious freedom thing. But like I said before, if they were if they were filleting people alive on the front lawn of flag, the front, outside the front of the building of flag, I'm pretty sure law would step in. Regardless of religion, you know, but that's our religious that's our religious doctrine. We fillet people alive on the front doorstep of, of the of flag. Oh, how, how do you defend it? How is that any how, how can that be? And just using that philosophy, how can you say, hey, we're gonna do something about you filleting people in the front? But you know, if you want to molest children, you know, that's your thing. You know, <laughs> you know, because the the problem is is that it's um, because of the silence that's enforced. There aren't any cases out there to set precedent for. Um, you know, uh, doing something about it. There are hundreds of kids who this happened to, hundreds of kids who this happened to, and there are, in some cases their abusers are dead now, um, but in most, in, I would say in a majority of the cases, the abusers are still not only alive, but very active in the church itself. And because of the silence that's enforced, I don't know what the laws are on child abuse, the statute of uh, limitations and things like that, but I would hope that there isn't a statute of limitations and so that people like Serge who are survivors of uh, sexual abuse and the other uh, second and third generation Scientologists who are out there on the fringes of the internet, if you're listening to this, I my only recommendation is to band together in numbers and tell the tell the dirty, terrible truth of what yep. happened to you and, and make a case about it because this could be something um, amongst the many, many other things that Scientology is doing that are nefarious and evil uh, that could bring the church to its knees because there are hundreds of children. I mean, this is like a spotlight, you know what I mean, type of situation where they cracked open, you know, the Boston Archdiocese and found this huge pattern of child abuse in uh, the Catholic Church. It's very similar to that. It's eerily similar. Like when I saw that movie, I was thinking, this could be just made exactly about Scientology and it would be the same scenario. I feel like I feel like I learned a lot from 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 Anikingling last night. I think if I'm ever at work and I and I fail to do something or refuse to help somebody and I get in trouble, I'm gonna take it to the top. And when the top boss says, "Look, why are you bringing this to me?" He filed a report. This is what happened. I'm just gonna say I totally would question his credibility. And you should too. Yeah. That's how I'm going to answer every criticism of the rest of my life. Is I question the credibility of the person that made that claim. Because that, that's apparently legally binding. And, uh, I want to know how you feel about, uh, real quick, because uh, Bert Leahy brought this up in our interview. Um, okay. uh, he was the camera guy that followed around Marty. Um, yeah. The, the question I have is, um, how do you feel about people who practice Scientology on their own, away from the, the, the strict doctrine of the church? Oh. You're trying to you're trying to set me on fire here. You're oh boy, did, did I just did I light a fuse? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a controversial topic. This is this is how I feel about them. Um, if they are adults and they are practicing Scientology on themselves or another consenting adult, um, this is America. 
and you can practice Santeria on yourself if you want, right. or Satanism, and that's fine. When it involves children, I, I draw the line because children are, um, you know, my kids are super smart, and I'm not trying to downplay the intelligence of children, but children are not at a point where they can make an informed decision right. about their spiritual destination. And, of course, I don't care what environment you're raised in, whether you're raised Jewish, Catholic, you know, Episcopalian, Scientologist. When you're a kid, you believe what your parents tell you. You believe in Santa Claus. You believe in the Tooth Fairy. And you also believe whatever doctrine they give you about the hereafter and eternity and God. And when you have a technology like Scientology that is so destructive, that is so harmful, um, it is child abuse, in my opinion, to do that in any way, in any way, to children. Even, and I'm talking about the things that people are like, well, what about a cyst? Like, no, that's brainwashing. You cannot do it. You cannot do the pure up. You cannot do study technology. You can't do any portion of Scientology. None of it has benefit. And I've had debates with uh, people who like to call themselves independent Scientologists. And I, I abhor that term because the truth of the matter is, if you are studying using, believing in the technology of Al Ron Hubbard and Scientology, then you're a Scientologist. Whether you're in an actual church of Scientology or you're in your backyard with your friends doing it, you're a Scientologist. An anti-Scientologist or ex-Scientologist, as I refer to myself, is someone who's the complete opposite of that. They do not, we do not use Scientology. We do not study it. We do not apply it in our lives to ourselves or other people. We reject everything about it. We're like, Scientology is a no. No thank you. And we're right. here to say, this is what Scientology actually does. Here's the actual result from doing Scientology. <laughs> it is harmful. It is a terrible thing. So, you know, I cannot tell people who are practicing Scientology outside of the Church of Scientology on themselves, um, you know, I could tell them, I think you're just, continuing your own brainwashing and you're not yeah. saying yourself and you know please get some help and do some research and I've tried that approach and it doesn't work so the only thing I can say is I, I think they're wasting their time and their money because they do charge each other money for these things right um, and, still in the thousands uh, but I, lower I, than I Scientology for them yeah. that they haven't recovered from it like that to me you know and and I understand it in some ways like my mom was in for 40 years and part of her recovery process was cherry-picking things that had benefited her or she had a good time doing or she felt she had really helped someone doing. And as we've discussed the results of Scientology and the actual, like, things that are going on when you're doing processes and stuff, she has bit by bit let go of these things. And it really is a hard process because, especially for people who, you know, have been in it 30, 40 years, you're just yeah. now to say to yourself, I wasted 40 years of my life. I threw that away on a piece of shit. Like, who does that? You know, and that's a lot to take in. So I think it's, people really can't let it go. They, they have, it has benefits. It's helped them. Um, no, Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Every exactly. Everything you made was your decision. It was not because of Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard. And that's the thing that people have to, you know, they, it's a crutch. They can't take, because Scientology teaches you that. Nothing you do that's good is because of you. It's because of Scientology. And everything bad that happens to you is because of you. Only Scientology. So, yeah. 
So only Scientology is good and you are bad. So therefore, you couldn't have made any good decisions because only Scientology makes good decisions, you know. Yeah. So it's, a lot, it's a lot of mind control and evil to get over. It's also a lot of um, years of dedication to something that these people cannot let go of. So, you know, my, my politically correct answer is, you know, have fun uh, doing it to yourself and other consenting adults. But if, you know... If I found out there was a group of independent Scientologists indoctrinating children, I that's it. Nope. Yeah. I, I will speak out against that. I feel you on that. It's so unbelievably harmful um, to be indoctrinated in that as a child. Gotcha. So that, that is a strong statement. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get into ten questions with you here. Okay, let's do it. And I like that answer. The answer is pretty good. I, I always feel like, hey, like uh, whatever you want to do as long as you're not hurting anyone. But when you're, like you said, when it comes to hurting anyone, especially children, that's an issue. Um, yeah. ten questions. Number one, describe Monique Yingling in one word. <laughs> well, uh, what I said to, <laughs> I'll just, I'll repeat what I said last night to a few friends of mine. I said she looks like a sex doll that was melted in a fire and then had makeup slapped on it. Uh, that's about 25 words, but I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> that's a great answer. <laughs> it's too good, I have to take it. Uh, number two, uh, think fast, true or false, DreamWorks. Base the minion on David Miscavige. True or false? Oh, I hope that's true. That would be, That'd be hilarious. <laughs> n- n- number three, this is a fill in the blank. Without blank, you'd be lost. Oh, well, besides my kids, I'm going to say uh, pizza for sure. <laughs> Pizza's good. Uh, number Fuel of the soul. <laughs> number four, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this. Name one good thing about Scientology. Oh God! Nothing is an accessible uh, answer, by the way. I, I I met my husband, and we have two beautiful children because of that. Even though he's my ex-husband. I, I like that you have a positive answer about that. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Uh, number five. Uh, you're a movie person. You love movies. You have a whole podcast you do about, I guess, trashing movies. <laughs> but um, yeah. it's uh, what's yeah, that? What's that, what's that podcast called that you do, by the way? I listened to it Soil last Brustroom. night. That's one of the two podcasts I'm on. Soil Brushroom Cinema. We watch terrible, terrible movies and talk about. It. And then I have another podcast that I'm on. The, um, talk amongst ourselves, which is uh, we talk. Me and uh, Colleen Griffin, we talk about um, Saturday Night Live. So, which uh, is positive because we it, love Saturday. Night Live. It's pretty funny on on the because I've only heard your solo the restroom one first uh, so far. I listened to it last yeah. night on the way home, or I guess it would be this morning on the way home. And uh, as I'm listening to it, it's funny. It's kind of like Mystery Science Theater, which is one of your favorites. I read because I do research. Yeah. Um, the uh, the mystery, it's like mystery science theater after the fact, and I like that the main host actually yeah. uh, documents the minutes. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah. But back to the question, because you're a movie okay. buff. Number five, what was your favorite movie of the year last year? Ooh, favorite movie of the year last year. Ooh, that's a good one. Um. Boy, that's, now I have to remember all the movies. You know, uh, one of the last ones I saw that became a favorite of mine was Arrival. Arrival? I haven't I, seen it yet. I, oh, God. This movie was so good, and I really am surprised more people haven't seen it, and it's not nominated for a lot of stuff. But it was a very powerful film. Um, I really, I just, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was really good. Excellent. All right. Number six, what was the last thing you ate? Um, I'm still eating. It's a piece of banana bread, and it's delicious. It's homemade. Sounds delicious. Uh, number seven, true or false? You have heard of people leaving, and they decided to 
on their own because it just wasn't for them, and they don't have any complaints or any concerns when it comes to Scientology. True or false? Oh. Have you ever heard any stories like that? Because I've been looking, and I can't find one. Well, I would say that's true only because um, at one point, because I worked at Celebrity Center, they were, you know, crew morale was real down, and so they pulled out all these folders of people who had done, like, ass service in Scientology, and they were of all these famous people who I'm not going to out because I, no one should be shamed for doing, like, one thing in Scientology and then leaving. Um, but they were, like, saying, look at this person. They got uh, this process on this date, and then look what movie they booked right after. That's how powerful Scientology is. They just did one thing, and now they're a super movie star, you know, like. Right. So I would say those people were just kind of like, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> And they went on with their lives, and they never said anything. I don't know it. if that counts, though, because they, 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 it doesn't sound like they but were like as indoctrinated. Like a regular human, like a regular person. No, I have never. A regular human. I like it. Uh, <laughs> number eight. You have three DVRs full of TV shows. So, uh, what, what's oh, yeah. the best TV show ever? Oh God, that's a terribly tough question. It's a lot of TV um, shows. If the best TV show ever that I've ever seen, I'm gonna say Newsroom, and I can't emphasize enough how much we need this show back on the air, Aaron Sorkin, like right now in Trump's America, we need this stuff. Does it sort of just clarify things that are a little foggy in the media and things that you see? It kind of puts a, a, a spotlight just, on it. It was so, yeah, it just was so brilliantly written and it took on so many topics um, from a broad range of, of viewpoints that it, it just, I miss it. I miss that show. I miss the characters. I mean, I... I obsessively watch things. Westworld is really good right now. Westworld. Like, changed yeah. my life this year. Stranger Things was the best show that happened on 2016. That's, that's hands down. Nora, Nora, do you ever go to a restaurant like uh, has, like, the neon lights and you, all you think is Stranger Things when you look at the neon lights? Because <laughs> I do that. I do that. I go by, like, uh, Loghorn. I see the red Oh. Yeah, I hear I'm the theme. I'm my, <laughs> my South Park Stranger Things. Somebody, like, drew the Stranger Things characters as, like, South Park people. I'm actually wearing that right now. You need to take a selfie and post it. I want to see that. <laughs> and then I'll put then I'll put it in the scroll next week when they, when your interview airs. I'll have it in there. There you go. <laughs> um, Raging Buddha. What is the significance? I, I know there's going to be a reference to something that I'm missing here. Well, what? basically, it was um, it's actually a reference to Raging Bull. Ah. And so I feel like when I first started getting out of Scientology, I had a lot of anger which still pops up for me time and time again. And I did look to Buddhism, specifically Zen Buddhism. I started reading um, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of books about it. But one uh, guy in particular um, really kind of spoke to me, and that's Brad Warner. He's an American Zen Buddhist, but he was also a punk rocker. And so um, his books are very funny and very um, American, I would say, in, in how he delivers the teachings that he received um, and he breaks down uh, Zen Buddhism and its history and stuff very, very, very well. And um, like his, his latest book that he just wrote is called Don't Be a Jerk. And I like kind it. of how he approaches <laughs> it. Yeah, I really like If anybody out there, read Brad Warner's book. Um, he's amazing. But um, it really, that was the first thing that helped me uh, was actually starting to meditate and being more present and not, like, allowing my past to be on top of me all the time. But I was still very angry about my past. 
So I just thought I'm a I'm a raging Buddhist. Nor like, I'm not I'm not Zen. Nor we're angry about your past. <laughs> Everybody's angry about your past. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, that's why there's yeah. that's why there's efforts in place. Um, number ten. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question. True or false? Okay. You did this interview for money and fame. Totally true. I'm cashing the check later. <laughs> Five dollar check is in the mail. <laughs> I think I can do five hours. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I have enjoyed this interview very much, uh, talking with you now for 14 hours. <laughs> it feels like a little bit. It's going to be split up. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so much. But it's no, okay. I, I'm definitely not getting any money for this, and, I, and I'm happy to do it for free because uh, truth should be free. Absolutely. Always. Absolutely. In closing, let me ask you, uh, you know, some people see you as um, – as a lesbian, and people in Scientology would see you as a um, as an SP. Who do you see yourself as? Who is Nora uh, Crest? What are you? Oh my goodness! Do you have another hour? No. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's a, that's a, like these are like oh, last question. Oh, what's the meaning of life? Um, uh, <laughs> Sorry. I, I, no, it's okay. I would say I, gosh, I, my, my view of myself is evolving constantly, but right now I see myself as a strong woman um, who's a mother of two very intelligent, strong feminist sons who uh, is trying her best to, you know, live her best life in its truest form and help as many people as she can, uh, including herself. So that's, that's if a, I'm going to talk about, that's what I see. That's awesome. That's very awesome. Is there anything else that you want to say in parting ways here? Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much uh, for letting me talk about all this stuff because I'm I'm just happy to get the information out there. And I encourage everyone, even people who haven't been involved with Scientology, please do some research. And if you know Scientologists, just sit them down. Please get them to watch Leah Remini's show or Going Clear and just do it from a place of love and, um, you know, help help them to recover from this craziness because people do need help. Right. And every voice is important. And, uh, you know, I'm an outsider that this is doing this because it just seems like the thing to do, uh, like the right thing to do. And, I appreciate uh, that because there's not a lot of people that are brave enough to stick their neck out to do that that have had nothing to do with it. So you, thank you. Oh uh, no, no problem at all. It's um, like I said, it just feels like the right thing to do. I, I've been, and, and you know, I talk about it. And I don't have to take your time up with it, but just just to, just to summarize, I saw this special uh, by John Sweeney. I talked about it before, and I saw the Lisa uh, McPherson thing back in the early 2000s, and that nothing had been done till now. This shocks me, and now I have a podcast. So yes, it's not gonna yeah. go. No one's gonna forget now. And um, and that's the whole idea of it. And your voice is uniquely important. And, and you just have, uh, I think you know now, I don't think you need to be told, but uh, you have a very important role in all of this. And, and you're hugely important. So just know oh, that. Thank you. Uh, no problem. So uh, thank you for doing the show. Thank you for talking to me and being so open. Everybody, I guess, has been so open and honest. I just wish I could get you guys to sit down and get the guys in Scientology to sit down in the same room with a, with like an impartial moderator, and, and that oh, yeah. will, that'll never happen. But it would be amazing. No, I mean I have offered multiple times to uh, on air live debate Danny Masterson on anything in Scientology, and he okay. has never accepted. I mean how how can you put how can you put Mike Rinder in a room 
across the way from Mike Rinder's ex-wife with a moderator, and how can her story, how can her complaints and issues stand up? You know what I mean? Yeah. How how can yeah. that how how's that going? Right? That's why it that's why it doesn't happen. So yeah. Thanks again. I, I, I could talk forever about this. Uh, you, I know you have a place to be, and I really do uh, appreciate you being here. I said it was like you said it was like 14 hours. I said it felt like it, but it felt like one of the most enjoyable 14 hours, an important 14 hours. So thank you again. Oh, good. All right, Nora, we'll stay in touch. You take care. You too. All right, that was the amazing and brave and, and, and very uh, – very outgoing Nora Kress uh, with their honest and true story of what she experienced uh, within Scientology and since Scientology. Uh, so the best to Nora, and I hope that's not the last I'll speak to her. Uh, she's been uh, she's been awesome. So I promised you a, an announcement for next week's show. Next week on Friday will be another special extra. Come get some Scientology edition with the lady you saw in 2020, A War Without Guns. Licensed therapist and cult, uh, cult professional, cult. She doesn't like to be called an expert, but uh, but specialist. Uh, Rachel Bernstein. That's right. You saw her on 2020, and she's been on with Chris uh, Shelton on his uh, Critical Thinker at Large. She'll be on this very show. We talked last night. It was a great conversation, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. And like I promised, we'll we'll address some of those issues about the fight against psychology and the whole industry of death thing. And, and we'll address that all next week right here on Come Get Some. Until then, you guys take care. Stay connected. That about sums it up. See you next week. I'm getting down to the sum of this. The sum of that. The sum of everything. Come